I've been geeking out about this too. Um, some of us, as Jay announced, we've been celebrating this month around uh, with churches around the world uh, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Okay, we are children of that movement. Okay. Um, and a lot of times you think history, that's boring. Uh, you know, who would want to study a bunch of dead people? But it's important. We need to know our family tree. We need to know uh, how our faith has developed and been handed down to us. So on this anniversary, a lot of us have been kind of geeking out about this stuff. And uh, I actually, I should have told you this weeks ago, but I found a podcast this month that I've just really enjoyed. It's called Five Minutes in Church History, okay? On our resource page, okay, we, we developed a resource page for Romans. <clears throat> I'm really having a hard time this morning. Can someone give me a bottle of water? Thank you, my love. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me. I don't know. <clears throat> I went and got a drink like three times before I came up here. Um, anyway, we have this page, Romans Resources, and I've add, added the link to that podcast uh, on that site. So there's lots of good stuff on there if you want to go and check that out. But five minutes in, her, in church history, and each of the 31 days of October, they're doing a special kind of uh, review of church history uh, on that little podcast. So five minutes, listen to it on the way to work, right? So uh, that's what uh, we've been celebrating. And five of the kind of major cries of the Reformation that we've been looking at in our nine o'clock class together uh, go like this. They're called the five solas. And some of the things that the, the Protestant reformers emphasize is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Thank you so much. Can you say that again with me? We are probably not. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Those are the five solas. Actually, that's four of the solas because the last one and the kind of the one that kind of undergirds it all is the sola called sola scriptura. And what does that mean? Scripture alone, right? So we're saved by the grace of God through by the grace alone of God, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, all based upon Scripture alone, right? So uh, as people, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, for centuries, we have been called people of the book, right? Because we value Scripture, and, and Scripture alone doesn't mean that, that Scripture is our only authority, but it means that it alone is our highest authority, right? So at the time of the Reformation, the big discussion was, who, who has the final say? Is it your priest? Is it the bishop? Is it the pope? Who is the final authority? Is it the church? And what the Protestant reformers taught and passed on down to us, that, that the church submits to God's word. That if there's a question of authority, God's word always wins over the uh, opinions of humans, right? So we are people of the book. And at Centennial Church, we are proudly people of the book. We want to know this thing. We want to mark it up. We want to study it. We want to memorize it. We want to teach it to our children. We want it to reform our minds. Now, a long time ago, I heard somebody say, that as we are students of the book, one of the things that we should be careful of is that oftentimes it's the verses in our Bible that are not underlined that we should pay the most attention to. Do you get it? It's those verses in the Bible that are not underlined in your Bible 
okay, or highlight it on your device, however you do it, that you really need to pay attention to. Well, I'm being kind of facetious here this morning, but this morning we're going to look at a passage where I'm going to just go out on a limb here and take a bet. No one has this verse highlighted in their Bible this morning, okay? Here we go. Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7, okay? Get there with me. Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7, because here's what it says. And correct me if you have it highlighted, okay? Be honest here. Verse 6 says this. For because of this, you also pay taxes. I thought so. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. I think I'm right. Nobody has memorized that as your favorite verse in Romans or, or, or a verse that you just flip to uh, consistently, often to encourage you to get through the day, right? That's not it. I'm being facetious, but sometimes we do need to look at those verses that we tend to overlook. And this morning, we come to this passage in Romans chapter 13 that talks to us about government. You've heard it say, you've heard it said, don't talk about politics and religion, right? Well, guess what? Today, we are gonna talk about politics and religion. We're gonna talk about God and government and what the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit, uh, inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words of Romans chapter 13, okay, which, which deals with our relationship to governing authorities. That's part of it, and then it moves on after that, as we'll see as we go on here. So if you're back with us new or you've been out for a while, we've been talking <clears throat> beginning in Romans chapter 12 about how the gospel transforms us. And uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, uh, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And verse 2 says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, his coming, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection and, and ascension, that good news of Jesus is to transform us. And it transforms us personally, and then it, 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 it transforms how we are supposed to view ourselves, how we are supposed to view the family, which we talked about last week, the family of God, that is. So loving ourselves, loving one another, and even loving those who have wronged us in the last part of chapter 12. Well, this week in chapter 13, we see how the gospel of Jesus even transforms the way we think about authority, the way we hope or don't hope in government, okay? So that's where we're going today, Romans chapter 13. And uh, I've asked Bob again to read these verses for us. There's only 14 verses. And I wanna ask you to stand in honor and respect of Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, I want you to stand and follow along with Bob as he reads these uh, verses for us, Bob. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? 
then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Pray with me. Father God, as we look in your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be strong, be strong in my heart, through my words, be strong in the hearts of those of us who listen. And God, uh, use this time in your word to transform us. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Excuse me again. So the passage, basically, Romans 13 breaks down very nicely into three parts. Uh, verses 1 through 7 are really talking about the government. And there you could say he's, he's saying, have faith that God's sovereign, even though uh, the rulers over you may be uh, less than best or in some cases throughout Christian history have been outright evil. So uh, he talks in the first seven verses regarding the government and then regarding our neighbors. So the focus there kind of being love in verses eight through 10 and then regarding the times, you could say the focus there is on hope that the day is drawing near. So faith, hope, and love right here in chapter 13 of Romans. As we look at this idea of uh, particularly the first seven verses in the government, I think it's important to recognize the context in which Paul is bringing this teaching to us, okay? So if you look, just for context, the last verse of chapter 12 says this. The context is, is evil. Verse 21 of chapter 12 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How are you going to make a difference in the world? Not by adding to the evil, but by overcoming the evil with good. And that's a military word there, overcome. So I want you to remember, as Paul gets to chapter 13, he's talking about the fact that you're going to be persecuted. And don't retaliate, but overcome evil with good. That's the front context. And look at the back context. If we look at verses 11 through, through 14 first, let me read those again. Besides this, you know... Besides this, you know the time. What's the time in the first century? What's the time now? You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. 
For salvation, <clears throat> excuse me, is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And then he goes on to talk about how we should walk, not in darkness, but in light. In verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So it's like he's saying the days are evil. Darkness is here, but the, but the day is coming. And the way you live, the way you overcome that evil is by doing good. And you do good by submitting to authority. And you do, do good by loving your neighbor. And you do, you do good by living uprightly in evil times. Okay? That's kind of the way... It goes here, and as he gets to chapter 13, just put in terms of historical context, put yourself in the shoes of a first century Christian, a Roman Christian in the Roman world, or a first century uh, Jew who has become a Christian. And you have learned and you've embraced that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he's the ultimate king, that he's the ultimate ruler. So that brings a question to your mind, so what, what about all these other kings? Should I still obey the government authorities? If Jesus is the king, why not just disregard the earthly kings? And in fact, as Jesus came uh, to this earth and ministered, there were Jews among him that wanted him to be king, right? They wanted to make him king. They wanted a political kingdom from Jesus. And Jesus, boy, he, he spoils their hopes by saying, no, my, that's not why I came this time. I'm bringing a kingdom but right now, I, I'm working like a mustard seed. I'm working secretly. I'm infiltrating this world as light in darkness, right? So if you're a first century Christian, you do kind of have this worldview conflict of how do I deal? If Jesus is my king, what's my responsibility to the other kings and, uh, and to authorities? And in Romans chapter 13, we see that we are to honor the authorities, we are to love our neighbors and we are to live distinctively, okay? So verses one through seven. Verses one through th seven basically in summary says, fight evil not by, re not by rebelling against the, the government or trying to rule the government, okay? So this is, this is helpful for Reformation times, 1500 AD, like the church and the state aren't supposed to be mingled together. And Paul, Paul is saying here, in Romans 13, don't rebel against the government authorities and don't try to overtake the government authorities to bring Christ's kingdom here on this earth. That's on this earth right now. That's not the way it's going to happen. And if you read just the first uh, three or four verses again, he says, let every person be subject or submit to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? And then do what is good. Again, fight evil with good. Do what is good, and you will receive his approval. And look at the way he describes government in verses 4 and 6. He says, for he, the governor or the government, is God's servant for your good. And the word there for servant is the same word that we use for deacons today, diakonos. He says the governing authorities are there as God's servants. He's placed them there 
And all throughout the scriptures, particularly Daniel at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, the Bible teaches that God raises up authorities and he takes them down. Does that mean that he approves of everything that all authorities do? Absolutely not. And yet he is sovereign over the human authorities. And the general principle here is to subject ourselves to those authorities. Even if, like in the first century, the Roman authorities and the Roman emperors were wicked, bad people. He's not saying this in a democracy. He's not writing this to people in a Christian nation. But still, he's saying you can overcome evil by submitting yourselves to the authority, even when you're not just in love with them. Sound familiar? We can honor and submit even when it seems like the system is messed up. Now, are there exceptions? Yes, there are. Of course there are, and the Bible gives us exceptions to those. Before I get to those, let me, uh, let me show you some parallel passages here that say similar things. And I got a scoop. First Peter 2, 13 through 17, okay? Same idea, but this time from Peter. Be subject, same word, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's the same idea that Paul's saying. Overcome evil with good. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Look at that. The government is a servant of God, and you, as you live good lives, are servants of God. And then verse 17, I love this pithy summary here. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, honor the king. Does it say you have to love the king? To say you have to love the emperor, it says you have to honor him. You have to show respect. How many times I heard growing up from my parents, whether it was a coach or whether it was a teacher, and I was convinced they didn't know what they were doing, they were bad teachers, whatever, they, they, they weren't doing me right, and the teacher was like, you don't have to like them, but you have to respect them. You don't have to agree with everything they say, but you have to honor them. And that's right here out of the Bible. First Peter, First Timothy also, this one is uh, convicting to me. First Timothy 2, verses 1 through 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead quiet, or excuse me, peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I have to confess to you this morning that this, that I don't pray for people in government positions like I should, that I can be cynical and apathetic and cynical again. <laughs> but he calls us here, hey, you don't have to like him. You probably, you, you probably disagree as a Christian in Rome in those days about public policy. And yet you can honor, and yet especially you can pray. You can intercede for those in power, for those in authority. Are there limits? Yes. There are limits, and it's kind of implied here as you see in verse 7, and <clears throat> let me go through this quickly here. You know, we'll skip over verse 6 where he talks about paying taxes again, but verse 7, he kind of expands on that, and he says, and this is kind of the implication of, of limited obedience, he says, pay to all what is owed to them, okay? Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, 
honor to whom honor is owed. And so he's saying, you got to pay taxes, not from people that don't rightly uh, have the authority to tax you, okay? Big brother or big sister, and I'm not talking about government big brother here, big sister, but no, no one should be taxing you unjustly. But if you owe taxes, pay your taxes. But you don't have to, you don't have to go beyond that. The implication is this is a, this is a limited obedience, or at least a, a submission within the bounds of what governments are called to do. And there are times when governments or officials, rulers, they overstep and they, they ask things of their citizens that according to the scriptures and what God's teaching would be, would, would be to overstep, would be immoral for you to uh, follow through with what the government tells you, right? So we have plenty of uh, cases of this in the Bible. You can remember perhaps uh, in Exodus, the Hebrew midwives were told to kill the, the children that were born to the Jews, right? They rebelled. They didn't obey the authorities. You think uh, most popularly about Daniel. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And Daniel was told not to pray anymore to his God. He was, they were only supposed to pray to the king. And Daniel just went about his, his uh, normal devotions. And it got him in trouble, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's told to bow down and to worship this statue of Nebuchadnezzar, right? And they refuse and they pay a consequence for it. So there are times uh, when the, the rulers over us, the government may, may do things that we are by conscience and God's word will not allow ourselves to do, uh, will not allow ourselves to obey. Listen to uh, John Stott says it like this. John Stott says, we are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. But if the state commands what God forbids, 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 or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. This happened uh, for Jesus' apostles as they preached, right? They went to the to the temple and they were preaching and they were, they were imprisoned, right? And they are brought before the, the council and uh, I believe it was the Sanhedrin. And they say, Acts 5, 27, Acts 5, 27 through 29, when they brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Ultimately, when push comes to shove, sola scriptura, we yield to scripture and not to human authorities. We must obey God rather than men. And Jesus taught this in a really uh, tricky way. It's in both uh, Mark as well as Matthew, but uh, those religious leaders, the Pharisees and some Herodians, they came to Jesus and they were trying to trick him about paying taxes. And they said, should we pay taxes or not? And Jesus said, well, show me uh, one of those coins. Show me a Daenerys. And he pulls out the Daenerys and he says, well, whose inscription is on that coin? Well, the emperor's, right? Caesar's. And then Jesus says this really clever you know, he, he, he threads the needle so well. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. Hey, that money is Caesar's. He printed that stuff. It belongs to him. Give it to him. 
But what the Jews are thinking and what Jesus is thinking as he gives them this illustration is you know who you are? Every Jew would know that they were imprinted with the image of God. Remember that? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God blessed them, right? Created in, as image bearers of God. That we have the imprint of God on us and we don't belong to Caesar. We belong to God. So Jesus is saying, honor Caesar with the money that has his imprint on, us and, on it and you honor God because you're the imprint of God himself. You are my image bearers. Don't give to Caesar your life, but give to Caesar the taxes that he rightfully deserves. We see throughout the scriptures that believers can work in evil empires and be faithful to God. You think about Joseph and Daniel, and, you think, and we also know that believers can work to bring change to government and societal structures. You think about Moses, <clears throat> excuse me, Moses and Esther. Here are people that are, that are working against the world powers that be to bring change, to deliver God's people, for instance, uh, in Egypt out of, out of uh, slavery. Moses, working against societal powers. Here's the, here's the general principle. The general principle implicit is that government is good, explicit even. And implicit, here's the principle, government is good. It is God's servant. It is a gift of grace to us. Government is good, but government is not God. And guess what else? Government is not a savior. And you know what we want to do sometimes? Sometimes we, as believers, want to get the right people in office, and we think that if we get the right people in office and we have a government that's, that's better than we have now, that that will bring about some kind of Christian kingdom. And that's not the hope that these early apostles had. There's nothing in Romans 13 here about, uh, about overtake the government and, and, uh, and, and apply Christian principles to Rome. But instead, the emphasis in the next verse is, in the next verses, verses 8 through 10, is go and love your neighbor. A lot of times we think government has the power to change a lot of the circumstances in our nation, the circumstances in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in the inner city. And you know what the, what the scriptures, I think, would say and what Jesus would, would say is, you know, you know where impact happens? You know where change happens? Not with big government or small government doing big things, but with small people doing small things that cause big change. So I love the way verses 1 through 7 flow right in to verses 8 through 10. They're talking about, you know what your responsibility is? It's not to rebel against the government. It's not to enthrone a new king and legislate what God is doing, but it's to love your neighbor, right? To do good, to overcome evil with good. Government is not inherently evil, and government is not our savior. Our hope is not in government. The, the scriptures talk about authorities and government here, but it's minimal. It's minimal because the emphasis of God is not what, what God will do through governments, but, God, but what God will do through his people, what God will do through his church, not through big government, but through little believers doing little significant things 
to make a big impact. The way I see it, there are three institutions that God has given us. We find these scripturally, three institutions. The first one institution that God gave us is marriage, Genesis 1 and 2. The second one he gives us is government, and we see that here in Romans chapter 13. But he also gives us the church, Acts 2. Read the whole book of Ephesians. And think about this with me for just a second. 2017, three institutions given by God, graces of God for human flourishing. And what's the status of all three of these today for you and me? Marriage, in danger. Government, in trouble. The church, largely ineffective. Three institutions given by God for human flourishing. The hope of the New Testament, the hope of God is not in government. The hope of God is in the people of God, the church. And you know what I'm excited about? I'm excited about as bad as the West gets, as bad as politics gets, as bad as policies may be, the church in dark days can be brighter and brighter in the darkness. So this is no reason to cave. This is no reason to think we got to fix government. This is a reason to say, God, we trust you in this. It doesn't take governments to do God's work. It takes God's people. In fact, God's work in God's church actually inversely grows as cultures decay. The church grew in the first century not because it was privileged, but because it was unprivileged. It was persecuted and it grew like crazy. I was at a conference last November, actually. Uh, I was listening uh, uh, to a couple speakers who do ministry in the Muslim world. And I was, bl I was blown away by the stories that they were told. And one of the guys who was speaking, his name is Ahmad, okay, works in the Middle East. And Ahmad said this, he said this, it is an exciting time to be in the Middle East. And then he paused for a second and he said, thanks to ISIS. We are not dependent upon red state, blue state, Republican, or Democrat for God to do his work. God is working in some of the most difficult political situations in huge ways. In fact, one of the stats that he gave at this seminar was that there have been more conversions in the Arab world in the last 14 years than the previous 1,400. We don't have to have a king who has our back. We don't have to have our policies in place to accomplish God's mission. In fact, sometimes God's mission takes, on, takes off not because of comfortable political stability, but in difficult political stability, in discomfort, in persecution. There's a role for government, and it's good, and we should submit to it, but we should not see it as our savior. There is a kingdom coming. There is a perfect king. There is a perfect ruler. And it will not be someone from this earth. It will be someone from out there to come back down here 
Jesus, when Jesus returns as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then, and only then, will we have perfect government. So he goes on in verses 8 and 10, and he says, love one another, just like we talked about last week. Just like we talked about last week. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. I read an article, staying on the Middle East theme, read an article that said uh, some of the refugees uh, that were being interviewed and being taken care of by largely Christian organizations. And one uh, mother of children who had lost her husband and been through, through so much, she said this. She said, the Muslims kill our sons and daughters and the Christians mend our wounds and give us shoes. Came from terrible political place, but was shown love. It's not big government that will make a difference. It's little acts of love by little people like you and me. So he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For love, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Let me go on, verses 11 through 12. We already really talked about it at the beginning, but he says, the time has come. The day is dawning. Salvation is nearer now than when you first believe. I mean, boy, that's true, isn't it, right? And if it was nearer when he wrote the book of Romans, it's nearer now. And so what's the implication? Again, love one another and live in light. Live in the light. Put on Christ. Live upright lives. Walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. You know, the first four of those, verse 13, well, that's, that's, that's really degraded, right? That's really... Well, that's bad. How about the last two? Quarreling and jealousy. Man, we can be ripped apart by quarreling and jealousy. And it can painfully hurt us. It can painfully hurt our body. And Paul says, man, don't give in to that. In the midst of evil, in night that seems to be dark, 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 live in the day, live in the light, because that day is coming. That perfect kingdom is coming. When we, uh, when Jesus comes back, we will have a perfect government because we'll have a perfect king. We'll also have a perfect marriage because the bride of Christ will be reunited with the bridegroom. And thirdly, we'll have a perfect church with no more sin, no more scandal, no more quarreling, no more jealousy. But our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in government. Our hope is in the King of Kings who will come one day and put it right. And in the meantime, right now, live in the light. Wake up. 
Give your life to what matters. Repent of your sin. And live in light of the kingdom that is to come. This month marks the 19th anniversary of a great buddy of mine who, was, who died early in college. And uh, he was in a car accident, and he died on October the 29th. And uh, as, his, as our fraternity brothers uh, went through his room and stuff and found his, his Bible, his Ryrie study Bible, his little bookmarker, you know, the little flag that hangs out, was uh, tucked right at Romans chapter 13. And he had a highlighted verse in Romans 13, and it wasn't verse 6 about paying the taxes. But you know what it was? It was verse 11. It highlighted verse 11. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. I don't know when he underlined that, but it was true for him and it's true for us. Salvation now is nearer than when we first believed. What's your hope in? Is it in government? Does your confidence in God wane with the news headlines? Or do you hope in Christ and his kingdom to come? And what can you do about the evil? Hey, you can vote well. You can be informed. Don't be apathetic. Don't take that cue from your pastor. Be informed. But most of all, love your neighbor and make little bits of difference that in the end make a big difference. Will you pray with me? Father God, as we look around the world, uh, even as we look uh, into our own weeks and our own hearts, it's easy to be discouraged by what we see by the darkness. And God, we thank you that we live in a country that all around is pretty free. And it's not as bad as many kingdoms that, that other Christians have had to live through throughout church history. And so we thank you for our country. We pray for our country. Most of all, God, I pray for your church. And I pray that in such darkness and such movement towards degradation and sin and evil, that your church would do these little things, these little acts of love to make your kingdom known, to make the king known. It's in the name of our king that we pray, King Jesus, amen. As we celebrate at the table this morning, it reminds us, the Lord's table reminds us that the kingdom is coming. And the kingdom comes because the king died for his enemies. He made us sons and daughters. I want to invite our servers to go ahead and come forward and take the bread and the cup back to your station and I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul tells us about this celebration that we have that not only reminds us of the past but anchors us in the future for the coming of Jesus. Paul writes this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed 
took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then check out this verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The perfect king is coming and he will bring the perfect kingdom. Jesus, again, we thank you that you have not loved us from a distance, but you have loved us up close. You have not loved us cheaply, but you have loved us costly in your very body and blood. And God, I pray that you, your sacrifice, your cross, your body and blood would be our hope in these days. Not the hope of political leaders, not the hope of governing authorities, but that we would be people who overcome evil with good by honoring all and by loving, loving our neighbors. Thank you, Jesus, for this reminder. Thank you for your coming again. We pray, Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. I invite you to come and celebrate.